How are you guys this morning? We making it? I like it. All right. The energy level's up again. So good. Thank you. Some of you guys actually slept last night. Others of you are just like sleep deprived and it's, you know, you've been up all night goofing around. So good for you. That's, uh, that is all about camp. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed these first, you know, 24 hours, maybe even a little less than that uh, of our journey thus far. Uh, it is good to be with you guys again to, to dive into the word. Uh, I was reminded of an illustration this morning as I was thinking through kind of where we're headed. Uh, You've heard the old expression that uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I'm a firm believer that the Old Testament is full of thousands of pictures. So I want to, if we can, work through yet another picture of the beauty of who Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament and to maybe leave you with maybe more uh, mental images of of the beauty and the the grandiosity of of, of who our Savior is. So if you got your Bible with you, we're going to begin our time together in Exodus chapter 11. Uh, So we're going to be a bit all over the place. I don't always run through scripture as we're going to do today and maybe have you turn as much as we are, but we're going to start here, and as always, we're going to get to Jesus, which means we're going to get to the Gospels. We're going to end up uh, in the book of Luke together, but we're going to take the scenic route uh, as we get there. Uh, From last night, if you guys remember, right, we we introduced the concept of, of let there be light, and we talked about this idea that Jesus Christ himself proclaims to be the light of the world, that he says, that is me. Um, in that, not just in the New Testament, but Jesus says, I was present during creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were present, forming and shaping and molding you and I into who we are today, right? Unique, special thing that, that we share, uh, unique to all creation. And as a result of that, we have value, we have worth, because our Creator, who has the ability to do that, has deemed it so. We took a good look at Genesis 1 through 3 as we walk through that. And what we saw is that just like Adam and Eve in the garden, who were created for relationship with God, God desires the same of you and me. He wants a relationship with us, but something's gotten in the way of that, this thing called sin. And God takes this issue of sin very seriously. He doesn't blow it off, but yet we saw last night that he he previewed, in a sense, even early on in the book of Genesis, a way that he's going to make sin right once again, that he's going to deal with this issue that we cannot deal with with our own fig leaves, that we need a God that would come in and based on his actions on our behalf, provide a way that could cover and ultimately remove our sin. We need a substitute. And we obviously know that substitute to be Jesus Christ. So as we continue on now in this narrative, in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and now as we continue in the book of Exodus, I want to give us a bit of a running start. So how did we get from 50 chapters of the book of Genesis and verses 1 through, or chapters 1 through 3, and now we end up in Exodus chapter 11? Well, big picture history is, is creation moved on. In Genesis chapter 11, God called a guy by the name of Abraham. He was originally Abram. God changes his name, and he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And he passes that baton to his son Isaac, and then on to Jacob, and then ultimately Joseph, who's kind of the key figure at the end of the book of Genesis. Well, if you know the story, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and he ends up in the nation of Egypt, where the Nile is and the Delta, and a tremendous famine ends up hitting the land. And God uses this Hebrew this Israel in, uh, Israelite rather, in the nation of Egypt to save all of the world at that point. And as a result of what happens, God brings the nation of Israel into Egypt. And what started really, really well with this incredible partnership with the Pharaoh of the day who understood who Joseph was as this Hebrew boy, yet he used, God used him to save the nation 
Egypt and Israel and everyone else included, well, that Pharaoh dies. And that relationship that was once good quickly turns sour. And now the, the Egyptians look at the Hebrews, the Israelite people, as a threat. And they put them underneath forced bondage. In fact, for 400 years, the plight of the Israelites is a horrible one. They are slaves in a foreign country, as God actually predicted in the book of Genesis. And yet God says, I have not forgotten you. I remember where you're at. And I'm allowing you to go through this very difficult season, but there will be a day that I step in and I will deliver you because I love you and I care for you. But in the meantime, it was certainly very difficult. Would you know the story if you've seen The Prince of Egypt or maybe some of the movies that talk about the Exodus? God brings this man by the name of Moses in. And he says, Moses, I'm going to use you as my tool, as my instrument to deliver the nation of Israel. You're going to be uh, my voice box. You are going to speak on my behalf to the Egyptian people and specifically to their leader, Pharaoh. And what God did, as you know, is bring ultimately 10 plagues, 10 demonstrations of his greatness, that he is bigger and better than all the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. And as we enter into chapter 11 of Exodus, we have seen nine plagues so far. And God now promises one more. The most difficult of all of them, in fact, it is a painful one. He says, the last plague, Pharaoh, because you refuse to let my people go, because you refuse to listen to my voice. At any point, you could have relented, but you chose to harden your heart, to stay entrenched in sin, to not move towards me. I'm going to bring about the death of every firstborn in the entire nation of Egypt. Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, describe this event. It says, Moses said, thus says the Lord, at about midnight, I am going to go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn." In the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So whether you are high on the hog, so to speak, and you are Pharaoh, you are at the top of the food chain, your firstborn son will die. And if you're a slave girl or even the firstborn of the cattle, every firstborn in the nation is going to die. Death will come for all. And as God's chosen people are a part of this, there's the tendency to think, oh, well, that's just Egypt. We're not like them. They have hardened their heart to the things of our God. They are not leading into him. But as we see in the text, and in fact, Ezekiel chapter 20 says, during this 400-year time that Israel was in Egypt, they began to adopt their practices. And in fact, the Israelites began to worship the gods of Egypt. And their sin was coming out as well. And just like the Egyptians, what the Israelites are learning in this moment is that we are sinners too. And the consequences of our sin are not going to escape us. You see, it's not just them and those people that need God to intervene. It's us as well. And the consequences of our sin aren't simply on the Egyptians. Those are on us as well. So when God says every firstborn is going to die, he means every not just from the Egyptians, but from the Israelites as well. This is a serious, um, stern moment in the midst of, of this journey. And yet, God, because of his love, provides a way of escape. And what we're going to see is that rescue is going to come through sacrifice. Salvation for the Jewish people is going to come through substitution. Do you guys remember the movie Hunger Games? 
Uh, what was the first one? Mockingjay? Yes? No? What was it? Just Hunger Games? Okay, it's been a while, right? Uh, but the story, as you recall, is of um, these two sisters, right? You remember Prim, who was selected as one of the two people from every district that would have to compete in the Hunger Games, right? And her older sister did not want this to happen. So what did she do? She stood as tribute on her behalf. She was her substitute. You see, there was no getting out of the law. The law demanded that two people from every district would compete. No ifs, no ands, no buts. That was the law. But what you could do is stand in the place of another. And what Katniss did on behalf of her sister was switch places. I will take your place. I will take the punishment that you were supposed to bear. And in the same way, this is the picture now that we're going to see in Exodus chapter 12, what is commonly called the Passover. Look at Exodus 12 verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Aaron is Moses' brother, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year to you. On the, on the, on the eve of the, the Passover, God says, hey, wait a second. I'm going to hit the timeout button. And what I'm about to do is so significant, it's so important that we're going to stop and we're going to make it a memorial forever. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, not just today and through my actions, but I'm going to tell you every year after this, you're going to stop as a nation and you're going to remember this event because I'm going to show up in a way that I very rarely show up. Through the visible hand of miracle, I am going to show myself. And he says, this month that we're in is the month of Nisan. We don't see it necessarily in the text, but it's actually the month that we're about to get into. March or April, on the Jewish calendar, they called it the month of Nisan, like the car, but just with one S, N-I-S-A-N. It now is going to be, according to God, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, the first month of the year. God says, this is going to be like your New Year's. We're going to hit the reset button because something so significant is about to go down that we're going to have to memorialize this forever. And in verse 3, he goes on to say this. I want you to speak to all the congregation of Israel, all the people, saying, on the 10th of this month, on the 10th of Nisan, they are each to take one lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So on this month of Nisan, on the 10th specifically, you're to go get a lamb. And this lamb is going to be for your entire household. This day, by the way, came to be known as Lamb Selection Day. You selected your lamb as a family together that would be commemorated here in a few days that Moses is going to tell us about. It's like a celebratory event. Think of it like going to pick out your Christmas tree. For those of you guys that don't have fake trees like I do at home, uh, you go get a real one, right? And you chop it down. And you throw it on top of the, the family SUV or the minivan or whatever. But it's, it's kind of a celebratory fun thing that you would do together as a family. And you would bring this lamb home. Now, here's why this is such a big deal. Because this lamb is special. It is unique. Look at verse 5. Your lamb, God says, shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or the goats. So you can take a sheep, you can take a lamb, or you can take it from the goats. It doesn't matter which, but do you see the requirements of said lamb? What do you notice in verse 5? Talk to me. What do you see about the requirements of this lamb? It has to be one year old. Let's start there. Why a one-year-old? Any of you guys have cattle at home or sheep or raise animals? Why is a one-year-old picked here? Can you bring your, like, 87-year-old, like, 
bow-legged, limping, one-eyed sheep? No. Why? That'd be like the first one you want to offer, right? Why? Because it's old. It's kind of a has-been. It's lived a good life, but we're going to kind of put it out to pasture. God says, "Uh uh-uh. You're going to bring me a one-year-old, one that has life in front of it, one that is valuable to your family. It's going to cost you something. Okay, so it's one-year-old. What else? You said another word there. A male. Why a male? Think pictures. What is this ultimately a picture of that you and I know 2,000 years later? It's a picture of Jesus. So it's going to be a male. It's not that males are better than females, but this is a picture of what's to come. Now, they didn't know that yet. This is a shadow. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come, but it will be a male. Okay? What kind of male? Read closely. Without blemish. What does that mean? Perfect. Spotless. So you're going to give me an invaluable, spotless male. Do you see the pictures that's forming now for them and for us, obviously, as well? In fact, this was done in the, in the, in the priesthood as they would, in later times with the tabernacle and the temple, they would bring these lambs to a priest, and the priest would literally inspect it, look at its ears, check its legs, and make sure that this animal was exactly what God said it would need to be. But notice this. That lamb went home with you. Look at verse 6. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So lamb selection day is what day? The 10th of Nisan. And you kept that lamb from the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th. So that lamb lived in your home for five days. Now, ladies, I've got three of y'all at home. And if I brought a lamb, a one-year-old little fluffy pretty lamb into my home, what is my 14-year-old going to do? She's going to keep it. She's going to what? She's going to name it. What's, what's, you know, Lammy's, I just named the lamb. Lammy's name's going to be, right? Fluffy, Pocahontas, I don't know. But there's what? An attachment that's forming. Oh, it's the lamb. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, can we take it outside? Oh, can I feed it today? Right? My girls would be fully in. And that's the picture here. Why would God make this lamb stay in your home for five days before the Passover that's coming. He wants you to get attached to it. He wants you to understand that you love this lamb. You care for this lamb. So what about, what's about to occur is even more difficult. Now, what happens to that lamb? Now, I apologize. I know we're just after breakfast, but we're going to read some, some heavy text here in terms of a little bit of blood, so just to prepare yourselves. Look at the back half of verse 6. You're going to keep that lamb until the 14th day. Then... The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So you're going to take that lamb that's lived with you now for five days, and probably the head of the household, the father, maybe in accompaniment with the oldest boy of the home, would take that lamb outside, and they would take its life from it. How are you feeling in this moment? If you're an eight-year-old kid, a ten-year-old kid, how are you feeling in that family? bad. A little heavy, is it not? You think you've grown attached to that lamb and that process? Do you think you're like, Dad, hey, can, is there another way? Do, do, we, do we really need to do this? Isn't there some type of end around that we could run? And God says, no, this is the picture. Now remember, as you're thinking through what God's doing, he's offering the people pictures ultimately of what's to come. Now, in verse 7, I want you to notice what God instructs them to do with the blood from this lamb. He says, moreover, they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now, I had no idea what a lintel is. I had to look it up, right? The doorpost, I know. That's the side of your doors, like your door jams. The lintel is the top of the door. So you're going to take this blood that was spilled by the lamb that you, that you killed, and you're going to put it on the doorpost and on the lintel all the way around the front door of your home. And in verse 8 now, it says, They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You're going to take this lamb, and you're going to enjoy a meal together. And you're going to eat this lamb. And you're going to eat it, it says, with unleavened bread, which is quick to rise. It is very quick to make. But also with bitter herbs. Why, given where Israel has been for 400 years in slavery, would God, God say, I want you to eat something that's not sweet, but bitter? What are they to remember during this moment? What has that 400 years of slavery been like for them? It's been bitter. It's been hard. So God's reminding them, I want you to put that in your mouth. And I want you to remember what that tasted like. What it was like to be slaves for 400 years in oppressed by a nation. It was not a sweet time. And every year thereafter, I want you to remember this. Now in verse 21, we're going to see now another picture of this lamb. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take yourselves preparations for the lamb according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none of you should go outside his door until morning. So you do what we've asked you to do. You put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel and then you stay inside. You stay underneath the protection of what God has provided for you, underneath the blood of the Lamb. And then in verse 23, Moses says, The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over. There is where we get our word for this festival, this holiday. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. God will see that blood that you have applied to your home. And it's not just enough, by the way, for the lamb to die, is it? That lamb's blood can't just stay outside. God says, no, you have to do something with it. You have to demonstrate that you're putting your faith, your trust in that lamb publicly. You have to declare that you believe in this substitute for you. In fact, in verse 13, if you go back up in chapter 12, it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. What is a sign? As you drive down the road, what is a sign? Something visible. It's something that leads you. It's something that you can see. God says, that'll be a sign for you. And I will see that blood pass over you. No plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It was the public declaration, the public applying of blood that demonstrated your trust or your faith in said lamb. And this Passover now is there to protect you from the consequences of sin. And again, it's not just Egypt. It's Israel as well. And just as God had promised that he would do this thing, he does indeed do it. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12 with me. It says, Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the cattle, uh, and it happened just as God said it would. 
And God says now moving forward, every year you're going to stop and you're going to remember this event. Look backwards at verse 24. You shall observe this event as an ordinance to you, to your children forever. And when you enter the land that I'm going to give you, as he promised, you shall observe this right. Every year moving forward, you're going to celebrate the Passover. In 26, when your children say to you, what does this mean? Why are we doing this, mom and dad? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed down low in worship. God was gracious, and he didn't have to be. God provided a substitute, though he didn't have to. Because of his love for us kids, this is why we're doing this. This was the job of the parents to tell the kids. So do you see the the picture of what the Passover is? That Israel, just like Egypt, was guilty of sin. They needed a substitute. And God takes sin very seriously. And as a result of this, doesn't just blow it off and say, ah, it's not that big a deal. You don't need a lamb. You don't need a, a substitute. You can do it your own way. Your fig leaves will work just fine. God says, no. I will provide for you on your behalf. I had a seminary professor that put this into living color for me. He told the story of a student that the day before a paper was due, the day of the paper being due that day actually at midnight, called him and said, hey, prof, I'm sorry, I need an extension. I know you've given me a month and a half to write this paper, but I haven't started it yet, and it's due today. Will you give me grace? Will you just extend the deadline? And the professor said, I'm sorry. I just can't do that. The standard is the standard. I can't just allow you to have one set of rules and the rest of the students of the class have another set of rules. And the student was was devastated in that moment and said, well, can't you just be lenient and gracious to me? And he said, no. And then he turned around and he picked up his phone and he called his wife. The professor did. And he said, honey, I know it's our anniversary. I know we're supposed to go out tonight, but I need you to cancel those plans. Because I'm going to be in the library with this student until midnight tonight, until we get that paper done according to the deadline. That professor found a way to be both just and merciful. He held that student to the letter of the law. It was due at midnight on this day. And mercy means I don't just blow off that standard, but I will help you. I will provide a way for you to make that happen. And this is what God has done. He's devised a way to be both just and merciful at the same time. Salvation through substitution. And when I see again that blood on the doorpost, it will cover your sin because I have provided a way that you could not provide on your own. But again, this is a foreshadowing. This is a picture of what's to come. It wasn't the real thing. In fact, as we move forward in the scriptures, you see that every year, in order to cover the, the sin of the people, this, this rite of passage, this Passover, had to be done over and over and over again. But this picture is a strong one. In fact, it shows up again a thousand years later in your Old Testament. So I need to do something real quick. I need permission to nerd out for just a second, okay? Um, I'm going to go somewhere that's a little bit like, where are you going? Uh, but I want to show you the significance of that. So some of you are going to fall asleep in the next three minutes, and that's cool. I'll wake you up in just a moment when I'm done. But I want to show you how this connects. You guys know the story of Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that Daniel. 
Well, this Daniel, a thousand years almost after this event that we just read about took place, he's in a land called Babylon. He's been taken captive along with the rest of Israel because they were disobedient. In the land that God promised them to live in, he gave them because the Jews didn't worship him. He said, you're out. We're kicking you out of the land because you want to worship other gods just like they did in Egypt. We're going to give you the boot. And Daniel, literally this day, is having a quiet time in the book of Jeremiah, uh, contemporary of his. And he reads these words. Daniel reads, thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back into this place. Daniel has been in Babylon for 67 years. He reads that in 70 years, three more years, that God's going to show up and deliver his people. And he's going to allow Israel to come back into the land, very similar to what happened in Egypt. But it's going to be three more years from that date. And Jeremiah continues to say, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations from where you were scattered, where I have driven you out, and I will bring you back to this place where I sent you into exile. And as he's reading these words, an angel shows up to Daniel, a guy by the name of Gabriel, who you've probably heard about in your Bible. And he says, Daniel, not only is this true, but I'm going to give you a preview not just of what's about to happen in three years as God brings you back into the land, but I'm going to give you a preview about the Messiah, the person that the whole Old Testament is focused on and when you're going to see him. And Daniel chapter 9 records this story. We know him as Jesus. In the Old Testament, they just called him the Anointed One or the Messiah. But in Daniel chapter 9, I want you to listen to this about what Gabriel the angel says about this Messiah. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird with some numbers, but I'll I'll hopefully walk you through them with some clarity. This angel now says to Daniel, listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time a command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, or the Messiah, will come. Literally, Gabriel gives Daniel a timeline. There's going to be 62 and 7 groups of 7. Those groups of 7 are 7 years. So if you take the 62 plus the 7, which you don't care about, put it, it's 69, you multiply it by 7. What, what Gabriel is saying is that in 483 years, from the time that a decree is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the starting of the stopwatch, until the end of that, what equates to be 173,880 days, you are going to see the Messiah, and he calls the shot, like Babe Ruth of old, old school baseball, who said, this is where it is headed. The start of which, again, is this decree that's going to be issued. In the end, we will see the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, as we know him. Well, it just so happens in our Bible that we have a recording of said decree. In Nehemiah chapter 2, there's a pagan king by the name of Artaxerxes who issues this decree to tell the Jews, go home, you may restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So our stopwatch has started. On Monday, I'm sorry, March 5th, 444 BC is when this took place. So if you count from there and you move forward 173,880 days, you end up on Monday, March 30th, 33 AD. You end up on Monday, Nisan the 10th, 33 A.D. Trust my math. Now, you've heard Nisan 
the 10th before, haven't you? What is Nisan the 10th to an Israelite, to a Jew? It is Lamb Selection Day. Well, did anything significant happen on Nisan the 10th, 33 AD? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Luke chapter 19, we have this event recorded called the Triumphal Entry. He, Jesus, was going, and there was spreading their coats. They were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen from the hand of Jesus, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus Christ rolls into Jerusalem five days before he's going to die on Passover. He shows up on Nisan the 10th on Lamb Selection Day, exactly to the day, 173,880 days, as prophesied to Gabriel to say, I'm the Lamb. I am the Lamb that you have been looking for. And as every Israelite who's faithful to the word of God is out currently looking for their lamb that they will slay on Passover, I am the lamb. Does that not blow your minds a little bit? That Gabriel would give this prophecy and this vision and that Jesus Christ would fulfill that literally to the day that he would stroll into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on lamb selection day And then four days later, five days later, he will die on Passover. Do you remember what John the Baptist said the first time he laid eyes on Jesus Christ? He said, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, as a faithful Jew, was putting the pieces together. These are the Old Testament pictures of the Messiah. And they are fulfilled here now in my seeing and in his coming. This is the lamb who will die to save the people from their sins. And in Luke chapter 22, we see the rest of the story. Is Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Listen to this in Luke chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It said, when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at the table, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to celebrate or to eat this Passover with you before I die. It is Thursday evening. Jesus is going to die on Friday. And he says, I want to celebrate now this Passover meal with you. This Passover, by the way, we know in a very different way. We call it today communion. And it's simply an extension of this celebration. It is Nisan the 13th. Jesus is going to die the next day. And I want you to notice these symbols now that have been in place for 1,400 years to Jews. Jesus says these symbols aren't just symbols. They are symbols pointing to me. And he brings them to their intended conclusion. Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. When he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. That body that's going to hang on the cross, is a picture of the lamb who will die for you and has died for you for 1,400 years. That blood that that lamb shed, that you placed on your doorpost and on your lintels, 
to cover you, to atone for you, to take care of your sin. That blood is my blood. I am the fulfillment of the Lamb. And friends, what Jesus is saying in this moment is, I am the the forever and the promised and the final Passover Lamb. We all deserve death because of our sin. But yet God, being merciful and gracious, comes in and rescues us, withholds his judgment from us. However, that judgment or that deliverance must come through trust in his provision, through the sacrifice of his son. And just like the Passover lamb, Jesus met all the requirements. He was a male. He was unblemished, without sin, in every way. And he was slain for you and for me. So as we boast today as believers, we boast not in our own deeds. We don't boast in our fig coverings. We boast in the gracious provision of our God because our Passover lamb has been slain. But just like in the days of old, it wasn't simply enough that the Passover lamb was slain, was it? What did you have to do to demonstrate your trust or your faith in that lamb? You had to take its blood and put it on the door frames. And in the same way, it's not simply enough that Jesus died for the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. We have to apply that. We have to put our trust and our faith in that. As we conclude, let me maybe give you one last word picture of what that means. On September 14, 1860, a guy by the name of Charles Blondin decided that he wanted to be the first person to ever walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. In fact, he successfully completed this endeavor. People from all over Canada and the United States came this day to watch this lunatic in a lot of ways walk across a tightrope from which if he fell, he was certain to die. 160 feet above the falls, he walked successfully across this tightrope for the first time in history. And in fact, to kind of up the game, to to up the ante, he did it several times. Once just solo across. On another time, he held a stack of potatoes in his hands. One time, he he rode a bicycle across this tightrope the same day. He did it in the dark. He did it blindfolded. He demonstrated in every such way, I have the ability, be it on bike, and he, I'm even told, cooked an omelet like halfway across one time that he, he ventured across. It's a crazy story. And then as he looked at this crowd that was, that was shouting and saying, yeah, we know you can do it, and man, that's awesome. He said to the crowd, how many of you think that I could take someone in a wheelbarrow across the falls with me? They sit in the wheelbarrow, and I push them across, and they had seen all this, you know, happen, the bicycle and all the things that he had done thus far, and they were like, yeah, we believe that you can do it, and they were going crazy. And then he asked for one hand. Who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow with me? And it was silent. Nobody volunteered. Faith, trust, is not believing that he could do it. Faith and trust ultimately is getting in the wheelbarrow. And friends, as we look at this picture of the Passover and the the imagery of what Jesus said he was, the final fulfillment of the Passover lamb, We need to understand that it's not simply enough that he died. We're having to put our faith and our trust in that. To relinquish control, to shed ourselves of our own fig leaves, or any hopes that we have to approach God on our own terms. And to get in the wheelbarrow and say, Lord, you have provided this for me. 
And I trust that you can get me across whatever chasm is before me. And my trust is solely and completely in you alone. As you go into your so what time, I want to encourage you guys to noodle on this. Many of you have done that. Many of you are here, and you've gotten in the wheelbarrow. You see this Jesus for who he is, your Savior, your good God who laid his life down for you. Tell that story. But obviously, there's many of us maybe here even this morning that haven't done that. Can I urge you to consider what that would look like for you, to put your full trust in the provision of Jesus Christ on your behalf? I encourage you guys to talk about that, even now as we move forward. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. And again, these pictures, for someone like me, and I imagine so many in here who are visual and just need to see what does it look like to to have a lamb die on my behalf? What What did it mean for Jesus to do what he did for us? And what does it mean for me to abandon hope in myself, my own sense of righteousness, my own, my own pride, my own things that I think I have earned maybe your favor or earned your grace, and I don't need maybe what these other people need. Father, thank you for showing pictures to us that, that we do indeed need provision for us. We need a sinless substitute to be in our place. We need the innocent to die on behalf of the guilty. And Father, you have provided that through your Son, your only Son, whom you love, Jesus Christ, who laid his life down willingly for us, that that chasm between us and you of sin has been forever bridged, and that we can come back into right relationship with you because the Lamb has died once and for all and forever. And you fully accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. Father, would you help us to to step into that wheelbarrow, maybe even now, and to believe with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our mind and strength that your provision for us is good enough. It is perfect in every way. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our sinless Savior, who died as a substitute for us. In his name we pray. Amen.